What's up, guys? Thanks for coming to our Kaafa and Miss You podcast. Here, you will find resources to help you grow in real devotion, real community, and real responsibility. So you can learn to love Jesus, not just for a season, but for a lifetime. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Last week, I was having lunch with a friend. Um, we were getting lunch at Village Inn. Um, and it was really yummy. We were just talking like girls do. You know, we were talking about relationships and life and work and, you know, yeah, life. That's what we were talking about. And we were having this conversation. And she says this phrase that um, if you have any sort of street knowledge, you know this phrase. It goes like, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it acts like a duck, then it's a duck. You know what I'm saying? Um, and then if you know anything about girls, the next phrase that comes after that is, if he acts like a cheater and he smells like a cheater, then he's a cheater. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, <laughs> I was all... Okay, in most cases, yes, you're right, but girl, you were like so off, like, you know, just have a slice of pie, like, like, you know, like, just chill, like, you know, you know, at least the girls I hang out with, I don't know what you, but anyway, so that phrase, it's common knowledge, it's called, if you didn't know, it's called adductive reasoning, basically, is you make observations, sorry, observations, (laughs) you make observations, and from your observation, you can make your breast predicament, basically. This is true. If something appears to be one way, and if it acts to be one way, and it smells to be one way, does it actually make it that one way? With 100% certainty. When I was a student here, I took microbiology because I love science, and you will find Jesus in science. Um, You're just not looking hard enough if you don't. Um, but anyway, so I took microbiology, which means we studied bacteria. I was in this lab, and we basically had to grow bacteria, and we would like we we would inoculate it basically, and then we'd give it a week, and then a week later we would like look at its observations. So we looked at things like what its color was, what its size was, what it smelled like, you know, um, how it grew. Did it grow up? Did it grow out? All these things that we would observe from this bacteria would like more than likely or not tell us what kind of bacteria it was. But the very last thing we would do is we would take a little sample from the bacteria, we'd put it in this little tube, and we put it in a centrifuge, which if you take science, that's basically this machine that spins it around and separates the DNA from the material, basically. And then after that, we would look at the DNA. And the DNA doesn't lie. The DNA is like the tracks for what that bacteria was, basically. And so, basically what I'm saying, saying, what I'm getting at, is that something can appear to be a certain way, something can look to be a certain way, um, but unless you get to the deep inside of what it is made up of, whether that's our DNA, or our nature, our spirit, whatever you want to call it, our heart, until you get to that part, do you not know what it really is? Does that make sense? So these past few weeks, we've been talking about counterfeit Christians, people who appear to love the Lord, who would claim that they love the Lord and that he's both Savior and Lord. Um, But when you look at their heart, when you look at the inside of them, their motive, What you actually see is something quite selfish. 
um, the motive to do the Christian thing is different from what the Lord says. It's something selfish. Now, is this bad? Doesn't matter. You could argue, I mean, they still go to small group. They still go to church. They're a decently kind person. They don't party. They don't sleep around. You know, they don't lie, cheat, blah, 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 right? So it doesn't really matter if their motive is different. Does it really matter if, like, their inside is different? Does it matter if we have a counterfeit motive or an authentic one? Tonight, we will talk about identifying if we have a counterfeit motive, what the root of a counterfeit motive is, and finally, what the only real and lasting motive for Christianity is. I would encourage you to truly consider and ask yourself if this is you. Don't be closed off like, um, there's a word, it's called hearken. Hearken means to open your eyes to see and open your ears to hear, basically. Um, yeah, don't be closed off. This could be you. This could be me. The truth is, I won't actually know. Only you and the Lord know. I can't cut you open and see your motive. The Lord does. Um, and also, it's always healthy to ask the Holy Spirit to search us and to search our hearts. Often, the pride of ourselves blinds us to our actual state. Um, but only the dishonest fear the truth. And if this isn't you, praise God. Stay right with the Lord. And if it is you, then praise God. You can get right with the Lord. Okay? So we're going to pray real quick. Jesus, we love you, Lord. Um, we love you so much, God. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, God, that we would be real with ourselves for just a moment, Lord, in a world where we are crying out for authenticity. Would we be authentic, Lord, with you? Um, we need your Spirit so badly. Would these people not hear from me, but would they hear from you, King Jesus? We love you. Amen. Okay, so to start this off, I'm going to tell you a story about a girl named Rhea, or Raya. I'm actually not so sure. I don't really watch cartoon movies, but the few that I do, I actually really enjoy. Anyway, so her name is Raya. Raya. Okay, cool. Um, she's from this mythical Asian land that's called Kumandra. Um, and then there's like this evil thing, as does in Disney movies, there's this evil thing, right? It divides the land. And so now she's from this region called Heart. And all the other regions are called Fang, Spine, Talon, and Tail. So fictional, so fictional. Anyway, um, anyway, so what happens in this movie, Raya's dad like desires to create unity again. He desires to create Kumandra again. Um, but in the process of that, he makes himself vulnerable and then chaos happens, and the evil spirit comes back, and then a bunch of people turn to stone, and then the land is divided into fang, heart, spine, you know, etc. You get the point, right? So what happens is when Raya becomes an adult, she tries to revive her dad's dream, which he's like dead now. He's like a stone now at this point, by the way. Um, but so she's trying to revive her dad's dream. She's trying to reunite the lands back to make Kumandra again. So, like any other Disney movie, she sets on this adventure, she's found her purpose, and she creates this little friend gang along, friend gang along the way, you know, it's great. 
And this whole movie, you're watching it, and you're like, wow, this is actually kind of cool, you know? Like, go Raya, you know? Save the world, girl power. Like, you know, it's so cool. <laughs> anyway, and she doesn't even need a man to do it. It's great. Anyway, uh, not the point, not the point. Okay, so she's doing this all. You're like, dang, she's so cool. But as you're watching this movie, and you're, as you're watching her interactions and the things that come out of her heart, you realize she's actually pretty awful. And she's really selfish. And yeah, she's like unforgiving, bitter, and just really mean. And even though she's working towards this goal of Kamandra, she doesn't actually want Kamandra. She just wants her dad back, basically. And so, which yeah, it's sweet and all, but anyway, not the point. Um, so you can say that her actions were good. Her actions were fighting for unity, you know? Um, but her heart, her motive for this was completely selfish. She didn't do it for the people, she did it for herself. She didn't do it for unity, she did it for her dad. Um, but what Raya did was good. Um, but her why was not truthful. Her why she kept to herself. In short, her actions were right, but her motive for her why was wrong. Like I said, does this matter? It's like the thing, could you argue, does it really matter if our motive is wrong? As long as our actions are right, does it really matter? She brought unity nonetheless. Um, sorry. Um, does it really matter? We see this quite commonly. So I'm a military brat. I grew up around military people. I lived on a military base all my life. God bless America. <laughs> I, <laughs> I knew the national anthem before I knew John 316, OK? Um, Anyway, so in the military, people join for different reasons, okay? They have different motives. Some do it because it will pay for school. Some do it because, you know, they actually are very patriotic. Some do it because, well, they get in trouble and the cops tell them to, you know? Um, so they all have different, or some people do it because they just really like guns. Does it matter if their motive is different, if they're still united behind this mission? Does motive actually matter? In the Bible, in 1 Samuel, this is what happens between, um, between Samuel as he's going to, I forgot what his name is, to David's dad. He says, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, who was a prophet, who was looking for the next anointed, he said, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord doesn't just want right actions from us. He wants the right motive. And so even though your argument that motive doesn't matter, the Lord says it does. The Lord doesn't care if you do the right thing or if you're united behind the right mission if you have the wrong heart in it, the wrong motive in it. Men judge you by the ways and means you live out life. God looks at the reason and purpose for which you are living. A man can change his outward actions and yet still live for the same purpose, which before the Lord is selfishness, still live for his own purpose. The Lord looks at our heart. Um, does that make sense? That's why motive matters. Okay, cool. So. Now that we understand motive, we're now going to talk about two basic principles for our motive to obedience. 
on which any government, whether it's God or just a human government, is based. The first is love and fear. I'm sorry, the first is hope and fear, and the other is love and confidence. So all obedience, all of our motive uh, for obedience, the thing that springs us to obey what is set before us, is either because we hope and fear or because we have love and confidence. Um, what does that mean? Let me explain this. So like if a country, so your president or the king of a country or like the gods and maybe another religion says to do it, you'll either do it because you have hope for reward or fear of punishment. Does that make sense? Um, a person either obeys the law of their country or of a god because they hope that their good behavior will reward them or because they fear that the punishments that they other that they fear the punishments that they will receive if they are disobedient, basically. Or on the other end, a person may obey the laws of a country or the laws written by gods um, if they confidently believe and trust that the laws placed in set are truly good and truly perfect. This is the principle for obedience. Does that make sense? Okay, cool. So we're going to look at the first one, the, the hope and fear first. Um, the first one, you serve God, you do these Christian things for a hope of reward for yourself. So at a basic level, this can mean you want to go to heaven, you know, when you pass on from this life to the next. If there is a peaceful place, then, you know, you want to be there. Um, and, yeah, so you do that for heaven, basically. Um, uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, regardless of the Lord or the Lord's presence, you just want to end up in a happy place, um, which might be true for some of us. Some of us who grew up in church settings might uh, resonate with that. But I think quite commonly, um, hope reward looks like something else. Um, it looks like we want something from the Lord. We want to be rewarded for the Lord, not for the Lord himself, but something from the Lord. Does that make sense? So this means that you probably go to a small group but not actually because you want to grow closer to the Lord, but rather because you want friends, because you're lonely, and you want to be rewarded with that. Um, or you go to church um, or Thursday night service because your girlfriend or your boyfriend go, and so you want to be rewarded with that, so you go for them. Um, or what's quite common here, whenever I meet someone, a student on campus, they are a Christian or a Catholic because of their mom. Their mom is a Catholic, and so... They're like, I love my mom, so I go for my mom. I'm like, oh my gosh, really? <laughs> um, yeah, we want security from the Lord, you know? We, we want to make sure that we'll be, like, good and taken care of. Um, and so we go to the Lord, um, not necessarily because we want the Lord, but because we want um, peace, safety, security, um, gain even, if you want to call it that. You know, we go to the Lord because we're sick. Um, I was talking about this with a friend earlier. You know that a hospital is the only place where like religion is like openly accepted? The only secular place where religion is like openly accepted? Um, you couldn't talk openly about pastors or preaching of the Bible, but they always have a place in hospitals. Um, so does that make sense? We go to the Lord either because we don't we don't actually want the Lord, but rather we want something from Him. Um, I'm reading this book, or actually I just finished reading this book it's by C.S. Lewis. It's called A Grief Observed, and basically in this whole book, he's like grieving his wife, and he's like throwing this tantrum, 
which, you know, he lost his wife, so rightly so. Um, and he's like, throughout this whole book, he's all like, I just want to know if she's in heaven or not. Like, that's what he's like worried about. He's like, Lord, I love you, but I just want to know if she's in heaven or not. Um, and he finally, like, towards the end of the book, he finally, like, hits this conclusion. He says, but then, of course, I know perfectly well that he can't be used as a road. And he's talking about God. Like, God can't be used as a road. If you're approaching him, not as the goal, but as a road, not as the ends of a means, but as a means, you're not approaching him at all. So what C.S. Lewis is saying here is if you're only doing these things to get something from God or to go like, okay, I'll do this Jesus thing, this Christian thing, this Kayapa thing, so that I can get something beyond God, if God isn't what I really want, then you aren't really doing the God thing at all. You aren't really approaching God at all. You might as well just stop because it doesn't really matter, you know? Um, the next is that we obey or serve God. We do the Christian thing because of the fear of punishment to ourselves. Um, this could look typical if you're a rule follower. I'm a rule follower, so, you know, punishment or consequences scare me and have always scared me. Um, and so you might have an actual legit fear of hell or a fear of a bad place after we die, you know. Um, I read Revelations and had a fear during by the time I was, I was the age of 10. And so these things were like <laughs> nailed into my brain and it like freaked me out. I don't know why they had a 10-year-old read Revelations, but they did. And it scared me, okay. And, you know, so hell was really scary to me. But it was like real and it's okay. If you're, if you're there, it's okay to have that fear because it's a scary place. Um, but if we're only loving the Lord because of that, then it's not a real relationship with the Lord, if that makes sense. Um, I did the Christian thing, and I was, like, baptized because I was, like, because some lady told me that I was going to hell if I didn't, and it scared me. But anyway, like, again, this could also be a spectrum. Um, it doesn't often look like hell. Actually, we asked this question, I think, last week for campus presence, and most people aren't actually scared of hell, um, but they are scared of not getting something that they think they, that they deserve, you know? They think, well, I deserve to have a partner. So if I do X, Y, and Z, the Lord will give me this, and I deserve that. And if I'm without that, my life really will be over. Um, you are scared of pain. You don't want actual pain, and so you do whatever you can to avoid pain, not just physical pain, but maybe pain that not doing the right thing might bring you. We are driven by warnings and not by the love of God. Um, or we're so scared, we're so fearful of what like the next right thing to do. We're scared we're going to mess up God's perfect plan for our lives as if he's not a loving father, but a taskmaster, you know? Um, yeah, we're scared that if we don't obey the laws of God, then the Lord will pass us by as if the Lord doesn't see us. We're scared of being unseen, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, so that's why we have a fear of punishment. But sometimes our fear of punishment isn't just we fear punishment from the Lord, but we also fear punishment from people. We know if I do this thing, my friend might see me differently. If I do this thing, my mom might see me differently. Um, so we know how to act. We know how to keep it socially appropriate. Um, but deep down, we don't actually hate the selfishness in our life. 
We just hate the punishment for it. Um, we categorize our friends to this is how I act in front of my Chi Alpha friends. This is how I act in front of my other friends. This is how I act in front of my family. Because our insides, our motive, isn't actually because we want to obey the Lord. This person still lives for himself. He thinks of himself. And he still seeks his own happiness and safety supremely. These fears keep him outwardly moral. Um, he keeps up a kind of obedience that is formal, heartless, loveless, and completely worthless. The problem with producing even the rightest or holiest of actions out of fear is because you don't actually hate the sin or the selfishness. We just hate the punishment we get for it. Um, but if you could, in your, if you can make your own little world where you could do these things, where you could indulge in whatever it might be, and you know what that is, then you would. This is called like the secret parts of our heart that no one else knows. If only nobody saw, then I would totally do it. You know, nobody sees, so I can do it. But if you're wise, you know that all things come to light eventually. <laughs> so the point is, we don't hate our sin, we just hate the punishment for it. Matthew 15 says, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is based on merely human rules that have been taught. Human rules that have been taught. Outward actions, those are just human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile him, but what comes out of their mouth is what defiles them. Sometimes we get so caught up in how, what is the right way to live. But the Lord says, I care so much more than just the right way you're living. I care about your heart. And if you get your heart in the right place, then all those other things will flow out of it. In Luke, it says that out of a good man's heart do good things come, but out of an evil man's heart, evil things and if we're still selfish, thinking about ourselves, then we are still evil. And there's selfishness that is coming out of our hearts, out of our mouths, even if we are doing the right thing. Um, C.H. McIntosh says, It matters not what I think of myself, nor what others may think of me. The question is, what am I viewed as in the presence of Christ? What am I viewed as? in the presence of Christ? What are you viewed as in the presence of Christ? The law may tell me what I ought to be. Conscience may tell me that I am not that. But it is only when the bright dreams of Christ's moral glory pour themselves around me that I am enabled to form a just estimate of what I am. Then it is that the hidden chambers of my heart are laid open the secret springs of action are revealed. The real condition of my heart is laid bare. This is what the Lord is saying here. He doesn't care about what you do. I mean, he does. But what he mostly cares about is your heart. When it is laid bare, where do you stand in light of Christ? Some of us, our motive, though, our motive for being here, our motive for doing the right thing, our motive for appearing and acting and smelling like a Christian isn't actually out of our love for the Lord. 
but it's out of selfishness. Why? Why is that our mode of obedience for God? Why, is, why would I say a half-hearted obedience with God? Let's go back to the story of Raya. She obviously had a strong motive for uniting the land and for creating Kumandra. But it wasn't because she wanted it united, like I said. She didn't really care about unity. She didn't really care about Kumandra. She actually didn't even really like the lands. Most importantly, she didn't even trust them. And you see this all throughout the movie. She created this little family gang, which is kind of cool, but the whole time, she didn't even want them to be there. They were like an annoyance. She didn't want to eat the little boy's food. <laughs> she, didn't, she wanted to go alone into that one city. She didn't even learn the baby's name. But most importantly, she didn't trust or want to live with that Namari girl. Raya hated her. Raya wanted to kill her. She didn't trust anyone besides herself. What does this have to do with us? John 5 says, You never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe in the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God inside of you. That's what the Lord said. He looked at people and he says, I know that you do not have the love of God inside of you. And you know anything about the Bible, what, what happened in the Bible, what said in the Bible is still true to this day. The Lord is still telling people, I know that you do not have the love of God inside of you. The Lord knows you, and he loves you, so therefore he sees you. He's not mocked. He knows what's inside your heart. The next thing I want us to really ask ourselves is, why is the love of the Lord not the biggest thing that sits on our hearts? Why is the Lord not enough for you? Because just like Raya, we don't trust anyone. We do not trust God. And that might be a bold claim to make, but it's true nonetheless. We don't trust that the Lord is enough for us. That's why we reach and grab and cling for things like security, financial security, which isn't bad, but we cling to that. Why we cling to relationships, why we cling to our family, why we cling to these things that we think will make us happy because we do not trust. When the Lord said that I am enough, we don't trust that. We don't trust that the Lord is enough for us. We don't trust the Lord when he said that he would provide for us. We don't trust the Lord when he said that he would fill us with all of our desires and all of our satisfactions. We don't trust the Lord. We don't trust his character. Um, so what do we do? We trust ourselves. So I can rely on myself. I can take care of myself. But honestly, like, do you think you're more trustworthy than the Lord? Timothy Keller, I wish I wrote it down, but he has this thing where, like, if we all, like, had a recording of the things that we expect 
from people, the moral standard we expect from other people, if we, like, we ourselves don't even live up to the things that we expect. Isn't that crazy? We are like the flippant ones. We are the ones where our emotions can change, where our feelings are fleeting, and we think that we are trustworthy. We think we will protect ourselves as if we can really guarantee security, maybe in a small glimpse, sure, but not actual security. You know, we think we will actually guarantee our own happiness. I'm sorry, I don't think I know anyone who is truly happy and they're relying on themselves. And so if we don't trust ourselves, the other thing that we do sometimes is we trust other people. We put our trust in the other person. If you're not trustworthy, I promise you no other person is trustworthy, you know? But we could take it a step further and we said, now that we just don't trust the Lord, but we also don't believe that he is good. Which, the more I talk to people, like, I don't think it's fair to say the Lord isn't good, but I think it's okay to ask that. Okay, and okay to ask the Lord, are you good? There is real heartache and suffering in the world that is unfair and is unjust, but we need to stop blaming the selfishness of man on the Lord. That's not the Lord's fault. It's the selfishness of man. But also, in this C.S. Lewis book I was reading, it's really good, um, C.S. Lewis said this, The more we believe that God hurts only to heal, the less we can believe that there is any use in begging for tenderness. But suppose that what you're up against is a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. The kinder and more conscientious he is, the more exonerably he will go on cutting. If yielded to your... Uh, if yielded to your wounds, if he stopped before the operation was complete, all the pain up to that point would have been useless. But is it credible that such extremities of torture should be necessary for us? Is it necessary for us to suffer? Well, take your choice. The torture occurs nonetheless. Suffering occurs nonetheless. Pain occurs nonetheless. But if, they are not, if they, but if they are unnecessary, then there is no God or a bad one. If there is a good God, then these tortures are necessary. These sufferings are necessary. For no even moderately good being could possibly inflict or, or permit them if they weren't. This might be hard to believe if you don't know the Lord, but when the Lord causes us suffering or pain or allows it it's for our good and the more you know the lord the more you'll be able to see that and agree that and agree with that um so we don't trust the lord either because one we don't believe that what he says is true or two we don't know the character of god or have experienced the character of god personally to say that it's true. If you're the first, then I want to encourage you to approach God and to speak honestly with him about where you're at, why you don't believe, and why you don't think what he says is true. The Lord will not keep himself from you, but the one thing he will require of you is that you come humbly. Our friend Sean said it 
a couple weeks ago. He said that God is not a concealer, but he is the great revealer. If you are humble, he will reveal himself to you. And if you're the second, um, where you don't know if you can trust God's character or trust that he's good, um, I want to challenge you to spend time with him and to abide in him and to study his word. And you will see time and time again that his intentions are good for those whom we love, and that he works all things good for those that love him. Um, obeying the Lord is scary only to the degree that you don't know the Lord. Uh, this past weekend, I was in Albuquerque, no, not, where were we? Phoenix. In <laughs> Phoenix. <laughs> I didn't get any sleep, y'all. Anyway, so we, there was this car thing, so I, I went back to the car with my friend, Lordina, and um, we're in this like we were we were parked in a parking lot that we weren't supposed to be parked in, and so we're just like there getting something from the car. I forgot what we we're doing. Anyway, next thing I know, this car, this sketch car, pulls up. He blocks the entrance out of the parking lot. And if you're a girl, you're like, oh crap, I'm stuck. What do I do? What do I do? Like I'm like freaking out. And next thing I know, I see Javi coming. So I'm like, okay, I'm safe. Javi's here. Um, but then, so basically this guy was like, you can't park here, you need to pay me five bucks. And the parking at the actual place was ten bucks. So technically this guy had a better deal than the actual parking place, because five bucks is cheaper than ten bucks. But in my heart, I was like, I don't care what you say, strange man. I don't know you, so I don't trust you. So I'm going to pay extra because I trust Hobby. Does that make sense? It works the same with the Lord. The more we know the Lord, the more can we, that we can trust that he is good and that he has his best intentions for us. Um, does that make sense? Okay, cool. Jeremiah 17 says, Cursed is the one who trusts in man. If you trust in yourself, you trust in people, you're cursed. The Bible said it, not me. Anyway, <laughs> This is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. It leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, can. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. The Lord sees our heart. He knows our motive. And in the Old Testament, the Lord uh, gave instructions and laws for the Israelites to keep. And they kept most of them sometimes. But we all know the story that the, even though the Israelites kept them, they grumbled the whole time and they complained. And in their heart, they served and loved other gods. And God calls them adulterous people. Um, Taylor used this analogy last week when he said that it's if you're like in a relationship with someone. And they're like, I'll be faithful to you, but in my heart, I won't. You know, the Lord knew this. He knew that what the Israelites are doing. He knows what you're doing. This breaks the Lord. This broke the Lord because he knew it wasn't real. It was all for a show. It was for a convenience. It's not a real relationship with the Lord, and it's not real communion with him. It isn't love. 
Um, and the Lord knows what real love is because he has a real love, real community, real fellowship with the Trinity. So God made a new covenant for us. He gave us a way to be real with him. No show, no frill, no need to go to a special temple or a special priest or to go through this special process of sacrifices. His son just came. Not because he had to, not because it was the right thing to do, but because he loved us. That's why he did it. He loves us. Oh, and also, Jesus didn't do this so that we would love him back. He's still a gentleman, and he still lets us choose whom and what we will love, and he gives us over to that. Our only response to this kind of love that the Lord gives us, and the Lord has shown us, our only response to the Lord lavishing his love on us is love in return. We love him because he first loved us. This is what the Lord commands, and this is what the Lord seeks for and searches for in our hearts. One, that we love God with all of ourselves, and two, that we lavish that same love on people. Our motive to obey the Lord must be love. If your motive is anything else, the Lord doesn't want it. If your motive is not him, but something he gives you, or something you're afraid of, the Lord doesn't care about your obedience. Obedience, which is formal, mechanical, without the presence in it of a loving submission of the will, obedience, which is reluctant, calculated, forced upon us by dread, and imitated from others, all that is nothing, and Jesus Christ does not count it as obedience at all. If our obedience is not founded in love, if our motive is not love, then it doesn't matter because it's not real and it's not authentic. Um, the Lord doesn't just desire a change in our actions. The Lord desires a change in our heart. The Lord wants us to trust that he is good. And our response is seeing the Lord in all of his goodness, in all of his majesty, and all of his, like, rightness, the Lord wants us to fall in love with him. And out of our love for him would we obey him. Does that make sense? Love is what moves us to obedience. Um, there's only one reasonable ground upon which I may call to love Jesus Christ, and that is that he died for me. And such a love towards a Christ is the only thing that will wield power sufficient to guide, to coerce, to restrain, to constrain, and to sustain my weak, wayward, rebellious, and sluggish will. That's what one of my old dead friends wrote. So no matter how hard you try, no matter how disciplined you are, no matter how much self-control you have, no matter how much you appear to act like a Christ follower or not, your DNA won't change, your, your nature won't change, Nothing will change your intentions unless you love the Lord. Does that make sense? Unless, the love, unless you love God and he loves, or sorry, besides the love of God and your love for him back. Um, Dick Brogdon says, our primary problem is ourselves. Not the devil, not our critics, not our persecutors. It is ourselves. So we can't actually go anywhere to escape evil. An evil heart, mind, and will accompanies us to all locations 
and into all places of rest, refuge, and renewal, for it is instinctively within us. The only possible place of escape from evil is not in a physical location, it is in a state of listening obedience. Our safety is in listening to Jesus and obedience to him is our only security. Um, imagine it like, okay, if I really like Lord of the Rings, imagine it, it's like the, the scene in the second movie where the trees come and they remove the dam and all this water comes down and like, it like washes away all of Saruman's like um, little tiny fortress, right? That is what the love of God does. That is what it means when he says that he washes us clean. The Lord washes away all of those fears and those hopes because those fears and hopes are real. I don't want to be alone. I don't want to be in pain. I don't want um, to go through suffering. It's not fun, you know. But the Lord says, I will wash all of those fears away. I will wash all those things away. And what I will plant inside of you is something so much more better. You'll be planted like that tree beside the brook in Jeremiah. Um, it is only when we trust the Lord for what he says can those fears be washed away and can there be room for the Lord to plant within us his truth, his peace, his new life. That's how we become a new creation. Um, in John 14, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him and will come to him, and we will make our home with him. That is what happens when we abide with the Lord. He abides in our heart and how he changes our heart. He washes those ugly, vile parts of our hearts away, and he puts his spirit within it. What does this mean? We can go back to the list of things that I said in the very beginning of this, but if God is abiding in us, his home is in us, and that is all that we need. We don't have to hope for heaven or for a nice, peaceful place after we die, because the very presence of heaven is in us already. We already enjoy his peace. Heaven has already begun for us here. Because if we have the Lord, we have all that we need. We aren't clinging or reaching for anything else besides close intimacy to Jesus. We have eternal life now. Eternity starts now for us. Not merely the prospect of it. We are not waiting until death to taste the sweetness and thrill of eternal life because we walk in that now. If you can't say that heaven has already begun for you, then I would challenge you to consider and ask yourself, have I experienced the fullness of the love of God? Um, Jimena's going to come up here real quick. <laughs> she just sat down. Um, what I want us to do, um, well, I will say this. We're going to have an altar call, and it won't be really long. I know I, know I went a lot over Tristan, if you think Taylor is long-winded, trust me, I am long-winded. <laughs> My friends know that. I can talk a lot. Anyway, um, so what we're going to do is Manda's going to play a song, and I'm going to, like, we're going to open up a time where if you or any of these things we talked about, where if heaven hasn't started for you yet, where you know deep down, only you and the Lord know, that your motive for coming here for doing the right thing might be a completely selfish reason, then I'm going to ask you, or at least offer the opportunity for you, to get right with the Lord, to repent of it. Um, 
There's no shame here. Even if you've been claiming to be a Christian for a long time, even if you're a leader here with us, or even if you're on the staff here with us, there's no shame in getting right with the Lord. Um, and also, uh, there's no shame in asking for friends to pray with you, too. Um, I think we have really good community here. We have a lot of fun parties and a lot of, you know, fun fellowship, game nights, pranking, etc., blah, blah, blah. Um, but all of that real community is built so that we can also fight for each other and with each other. Um, not just for other souls to know the Lord and be right with the Lord, but for us to know the Lord and be right with the Lord. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was at this retreat in Santa Fe, and there's a lot, kind of like what Taylor was talking about, there's a lot in my heart the Lord made known to me that was actually really ugly and really vile. And the Lord had been working on it, and so it wasn't like the worst thing in the world, like the Lord had been working on it, it had been a couple months, you know, it's good. Um, but the Lord told me, he was all, you can't fight this alone. You need to find someone to fight it with you. And so I went up to my friend Robin, and I asked her to pray for me. And so if you're any of the things that I've said, or you're like me, and you had gross and evil and vile things in your heart, then get right with the Lord. The Lord doesn't condemn you for that. The Lord doesn't say, ha ha, I knew, you know, even though he does. Um, he responds out of love. That is his response for us. That is his heart towards us. 